Welcome back to Martins and More. My name's Mari Rutsch. And I'm Spoon Phillips. And this episode's brought to you by the Blue Ridge BR-160. This pre-war inspired herringbone dreadnought is one of the more desirable vintage style acoustic guitars in production today. It starts with a solid Sitka spruce top and hand-carved parabolic top braces that represent the pre-war forward X pattern. East Indian Rosewood back and sides add a strong bass to the spruce top's already full sound. If you're looking for the Martin Rosewood Dreadnought tone with a narrow neck and a huge discount, check out the Blue Ridge BR-160 at marismusic.com today. Spoon, how you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's a rather muggy, balmy day here, and we have weather moving in, so you may hear some lightning in the background, and hopefully the power will stay on. That is one of my favorite Weezer albums, Muggy Balmy. Um, doesn't get enough credit if you ask me. <laughs> today, today we are talking about that Martin sound, and not to be confused with, that Martin sounds good. <laughs> ah, yes, you know, that the Martin sound. Uh, and, you know, is there a Martin sound, first of all? And if so, what is it, and how is it different, and maybe how do they uh, achieve it? But um, I'll just begin right now that, uh, by bringing up again, like I often do, that a lot of language, descriptive language, the person saying it knows exactly what they're talking about, and um, it may not actually be what the person listening thinks the word means. Like, for instance, we talked about uh, guitar buzzing, and you went into great detail about what you consider buzzing as opposed to other kind of noises that a guitar can make. And, um, and I have brought out in the past that I, you know, I, when I started doing my reviews online and was getting a lot of uh, praise for my descriptive language and the metaphors that I use since, since there are very few uh, words to describe sound and particularly musical tone. So we have to reach into the other senses of touch and sight and, and all that. And somebody else, you know, with a dissenting opinion got on and he says, all I need to know is if a guitar is bright or warm. As if warm <laughs> and bright were opposite ends of the same scale. And people, not just me, piped in about bright, bright and, you know. So if a guitar is not warm, does that make it cool? If, you know, if a guitar's not bright, does it make it dark? And that, to me, bright and dark makes much more sense than, the, and some people, what I would call dark, somebody else might call warm and so forth. So we will try to at least talk about what we feel and think and perceive when it comes to Martin guitars. And uh, if there is a signature sound, what is it? And... Um, I will try to put into words how wonderful life is that uh, the Martin sound is in the world. <laughs> Who invited Elton John to this podcast? <laughs> uh, yes. But anyway, so the Martin sound. Obviously, uh, not every Martin sounds the same. And so there's more than one Martin sound. But how would you like to begin? other than encouraging our listeners, if they're on the uh, YouTube version of this, to feel free to put comments below 
uh, with their take on what we're talking about and their own take on uh, Is There Martin Sound and how might you describe it? Well, other than that, that would have been one of my early suggestions, so thank you for beating me to the punch. Uh, this is a very universal podcast in the way that it's your show as much as it's our show. We love bringing these topics to light, but they really do live and breathe, and hopefully you guys listening to this, like Spoon said, with an opportunity to type back at us or with each other. We certainly do want to go back and check out what you are saying, whether it's live in the, in the comments on Mondays when I can actually uh, moderate this whole thing, or even better still, these podcasts live on and on and much later somebody might find this show a year from now let us know what you do think but when I'm gonna answer that I've I'll actually quote our friend Dick Boak I bumped into him so many times over the years but one of the very first times I almost bumped into him I was actually at the factory he was talking to someone else and I wasn't part of the conversation but I was walking walking past him somebody brought a guitar to him and said you know check this out how great is this and I'll, I'll leave most of the details out because they're not important but he was ex this person was extremely proud of how bright and projective this guitar was and Dick Boak was very very cordial and he was not demeaning and he wasn't saying anything negative but he was quoted to say that's easy the hard thing about acoustic guitars is making them have bass so I do recognize at least from his point of view in, in an off-the-cuff conversation who knows if he would go and own up to that comment or want to say it again now, I, I kind of have that in my mind where any acoustic guitar, whether it's uh, three or four hundred bucks all the way to three thousand, can sound in, in a broad scope like an acoustic guitar, but when I compare the Martin sound to something like Yamaha, Gibson, Taylor, uh, you know, in, insert any real other big brand here or small brand, I think for the most part Martin's got a warmth, a bass, and a, a real thick voice that seems to make me it seems to make me happier when I strum a chord on a Martin. There's something that I'll almost make the analogy when you're playing piano and you change from one chord to the next. When you hold the pedal down, the sustain pedal, and change from one chord to the next, and that mush. Here we go already. That might sound negative. There's the soupy <laughs> connectivity. You have thick and mush and soupy. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's that are, only positive, that are positive things from, from in Mari's perspective. So, <laughs> well, but, yeah, it's if I'm playing a chord on a Martin guitar, for the most part, there's some kind of a connective. What I just played connects to the next thing I'm playing in a very pleasing way. A lot of it's in the low mid range, and there's a thick voice to a Martin guitar that isn't present in other brands. And I swear I'm saying that with the painting with the broadest brush, we can dissect all these little terms and ideals as we go along but if you handed me three different brands I would base I would believe that I, I have a very good chance of liking the Martin better than the other two because of a low mid-range there's a growl and a thick low mid-range positivity there I, I'm going to think of a better word as we go but what do you think well I know what my word is it's undertone it's what I call it and it's what I used to call it um before the unofficial Martin guitar forum was around and all that, and I was on Acoustic Guitar Magazine and some of those other forums, I started describing that that low mid presence, that that uh, smoky rosewood undertone is what I would call it, because it filled sonically filled space the way smoke would fill a room, or like if you see smoke coming like from incense or cigarettes back back when everybody smoked cigarettes. Uh, see a sunbeam coming into the room and you would see the smoke in it. So it was, you know, there and not there. 
And so it was that presence in the low mid range area that, you know, base rolls into that, that rolls into the upper mid range, which rolls into the, you know, treble and then the treble on up into the highest, you know, overtoned harmonics and all that stuff. And I used to, as usual, get flamed and, and those kind of forms that allowed that sort of thing get flamed quite a bit. Um, and uh, for, you know, using this term and trying to describe things that way. And I, I said that it was a term that I had come up with, and I did come up with it. But someone who worked at the National Acoustic Lab, wherever that is down in Virginia or Carolinas, wherever that place is, uh, piped in and said, um, actually, you didn't invent the term undertone. We've been using that, uh, you know, basically forever uh, to mean the exact same thing. And, um, and so undertone can be, can come from harmonics, but it comes from the lower harmonics. So even though the high, the harmonics coming off, let's say the low E and the A string are higher than the actual fundamental note, of that E or A string, they're still lower than the treble notes often, and certainly lower than the higher harmonics. So it's a, it's a phenomenon that exists in acoustics and particularly musical tone, uh, as it relates to musical tone, that helps pro provide that thickness. So uh, you talked about the sustain pedal, and so when you strum that chord, and it starts to ring out and sustain, then you will get this, particularly with the lusher tone woods of the rosewood family, you will get a swelling or that will come up that helps, that starts to saturate the voice. And um, sometimes it bleeds up into the trebles. And I'm thoroughly convinced that you get that mostly in guitars that have a traditional wooden wide dovetail neck joint in a ne that's glued into a neck block made of wood and that for whatever reason um, the martins that have that have it more than the martins that don't and when they came out with the old M&T neck um, they sounded differently and there was a reason that people who were not martin players ended up buying the old 16 or the old Aura models and choosing them over a standard series model because they were used to brands that didn't have that thickness, that woofiness. You call it soupy, I like to think of it as brothy. That's, I think that sounds less negative to me because it's rich and, you know, it's like beef barley broth kind of, you know, bouillon broth as opposed to thin, you know, vegetable broth out of a, out of a uh, carton. Here I am using mixed, you know, throwing in metaphors all over the place. So I agree. I call it undertone, um, and and apparently, you know, acoustic uh, scientists do as well in terms of uh, how the harmonics work with the fundamentals. Um, and I w I will say for me, I'll just add that Martins have the Goldilocks just right of that. It's not that Collings don't have some of that going on, or Taylors, or Goodalls, or Huss and Daltons, or, um, um, oh, what's the fella who used to make guitars, Jackson Brown used to play one of his guitars, 
And after his factory burned down, he moved to the Northwest and just went into business selling like perfling and guitar parts. Oh, Michael Gurian. Thank you, Gurian. Gurian and so forth. Um, Gurian, by the way, is credited with inventing what we call the M&T neck joint. Um, though I think he probably used solid neck blocks. The old Martins had, uh, used to have plywood neck blocks, but now they have uh, solid uh, SIPO neck blocks. But, um, but anyway, that's the just right for me. And all of those brands I mentioned are on one side of that just right with varying degrees lesser of that thickness, of that, that robust presence that is coming up out of the body and, in, and meshing with the fundamentals and the harmonics. On the other side, there are makers that have more so, and I would say Santa Cruz is the example I always make. And Rosewood Santa Cruz, particularly the big body ones, are just drenched in that stuff, and sometimes to me is just a little too thick, and, and uh, you know, to my ears, starts to flood or swamp the, uh, the fundamentals in the higher ranges where Martin has its thing. And of course, um, why, other than the dovetail neck joint, what are reasons that you can think of of why Martin sound like that or where the sound comes from? That's a really good question. And it, the elephant in the room, if you ask Blue Ridge, they could probably try to tell you it's, it's a known fact that Blue Ridge really does try to copy many of the Martin designs and make them their own to the point where years and years ago, it's probably okay for me to say this, that Martin bought a Blue Ridge from us so they could cut it in half and see, is Blue Ridge really taking our idea to the letter and are they, how far are they going with this? And off the record, they came back to tell me, yeah, there's, there's a real similarity in when you look at the inside of one or the other, yet they don't sound exactly the same. And I know you brought it up on one of our earlier podcasts. It's worth mentioning since it's uh, metric versus American, a 24.9 scale Martin or a 25.4 scale Martin, the scale length on a Blue Ridge is a little bit longer. So there's gonna be that other attribute where they're still not exactly the same. So that might make a difference. But I, not only would I like to know, I'm sure everybody would like to know because forget about the fact that Every single guitar builder copied the Martin Dreadnought shape. They're all still trying to copy the sound as well. And after how many years is it now that Martin's been in business, nobody has successfully literally cloned what that is. So what makes that Martin sound, the Martin sound besides the traditional dovetail neck joint? There's something going on at the factory and there are billions of years of R&D and trial and error, this isn't something they fell into and accidentally started doing and just kept going. There's a reason what they did really works across so many brands and let's be honest, across so many shapes. You can play a triple O twenty eight and you can play a D eighteen and you know something like an M thirty six and they do not sound the same, but they all sound like Martins. There aren't enough hours on this podcast to answer that question, especially with me being the one talking. But it's it's a fascinating thing and I I know enough people at Martin that they've got to be so proud that they've made something so, so unique and so legendary, and they're still the best ones to do it. And there was a post on the Acoustic Guitar Forum, it's probably still going, where who does the Martin sound even better than Martin? And I only glanced at the first page and I didn't find enough time to really read through it, but that tells you a lot right there. We're, we're almost admitting the Martin sound is it. 
who does that better? It's not like who does a certain sound better and does Martin, is Martin in the running? Martin invented and perfected this. Who else does it as good or better? And it, it's, it's pretty fascinating that I've often just been drawn to it even if I can't define it. Well, we're both speaking as extremely Martin-centric people. We're Martin fans. And so there are definitely people who prefer Taylor, uh, the Taylor sound, and like the, the chiminess of it, like the, uh, the fact it isn't thick. There's plenty of people out there, even before Taylor showed up, that thought Martin sounded too thin or too woofy, or, or they were you know, infamously hard to record the big rows with dreadnoughts and stuff because of all the overtones and all that stuff. And um, it, I think it was said with some accuracy that um, in the late 20th century and probably into the 21st century, uh, Lots of artists own Martins and also own Gibsons and own other the Taylors or whatever, but you almost always would find a Collings in uh, guitar studios in their arsenal because they record so well, because they their notes stay really straight and their harmonics and everything kind of lines up in its lane. And there isn't a lot of intermarriage between the fundamental and the undertone and the overtone. N not that there isn't any. And when you get into later in later years, they started making more what they considered more pre-warish instruments, uh, though they still have the the multiple steel neck uh, neck rods. And so it's an odd combination of uh, a dovetail mortise and tenon that's not as big as the Martin dovetail or Gibson dovetail and bolt on, you know, and two two big rods with bolts. So that's part of it. Their, their finishes are different. That's part of it too. Martin has a particular nitrocellulose finish that they put on their guitars, most of their guitars, and uh, at a particular thickness. And when you get into the uh, Authentic series, it gets even thinner when they use a thin finish, or if you get custom shop with a thin finish. So there's lots of reasons that Martin, not every Martin sounds exactly the same body sizes. But look at the Gibsons that Martin has made. Look at the CEO models that looked like a, a J45, and looked like a L00, and looked like a, a SJ200, and and how none of them sound <laughs> at all like the Gibson that they look like. So even though they're using a shape that's very similar to the double uh, O shape, and that's very similar to the grand, uh, the grand super jumbo shape, and the jumbo shape, what they call, what their slope-shoulder dreadnoughts are called, they don't uh, sound because of whatever Martin does, they sound like Martins. And, I mean, the closest maybe was the CEO 8 with, um, what on earth is the back and sides of a CEO 8? It's not walnut. Uh, I can't remember right now. It's not a typical, uh, it's not maple, but it's not a typical uh, wood that, you know, Martin tip, uh, uses all the time. And that still doesn't sound, it may, that may sound the least like a typical Martin because it's not mahogany color or a rosewood, but... It still doesn't sound like a J200, even a, you know, even a, the J200s that are occasionally made with something other than maple, um, or J100, which is which is uh, uh, mahogany. So conversely, the hummingbird and the dove 
and the heritage models and other things that are square-shouldered guitars that are much more like the Martin 14 fret dreadnought, they don't sound anything like a D18 or, or <laughs> D28. So, you know, it's we can talk all day about what it might be, but it's definitely something, and uh, it's definitely unique to Martin in terms of the major manufacturers. There are definitely luthiers out there, people like T.J. Thompson, who make unbelievably accurate, wonderful uh, replicas of pre-war OMs and dreadnoughts and, su and such like. And um, so people you know, can certainly argue about which of those guys and um, you know, make uh, Martins that are very close to Martins, but you're talking about such small production numbers at, at such inf uh, uh, higher prices that um, they certainly are not a threat to to Martin in any uh, sense of the imagination. So, I mean, isn't it uncanny where you can play a triple O eighteen, an M thirty six, a D forty five, and say a Taylor? I don't know their their nomenclature, but a triple O Taylor with mahogany and spruce, and the three Martins sound more like each other than the Taylor does to the triple O Martin. Absolutely. For the sake of argument, say that they're both Sitka and Mahogany. What is going on besides the inherent... I mean, Taylor can buy a Martin guitar and cut it in half, and I don't know if they've ever admitted to doing so, and I'm sure there's been times there are tailors at Martin's R&D room where they're looking at what they're doing. What is it that happens in Nazareth and, frankly, at the Navajo facility for Martin where it's just not... You just can't steal the recipe and run home and do it. Well, I think, I think that you brought up two important things. One is the, the M&T Martins that are made in Navajo are still have a Martin sound. Uh, anybody who remembers the old One series and the old uh, Road series, the DMs and that stuff, would certainly know what I'm talking about because they, when they were made in Nazareth, there's the same thing. It doesn't sound the same as this, what we now call a standard series Martin, but they still sounded like Martins. They still sounded more like Martins than anybody else's guitars. Right. The other thing I'll say that's important is that Taylor is not the best example because even back when Bob Taylor started building and was making dreadnoughts that looked a lot, you know, had a Martin dreadnought shape and their grand concerts that have basically had a, a double O shape and the necks were very different, the neck joints were very different. Ironically, their neck joints kind of turned more traditional acoustic and, and less like a, an electric guitar. And their whole selling point when he first went into business was basically putting an electric guitar neck on an acoustic guitar that could adjust like an electric guitar neck and feel like an electric guitar neck. They've changed their neck shape, they've changed their, their neck joints over the years, still nothing like a traditional Martin neck joint. But, um, but then they changed, you know, the bracings changed, they've, they invent, you know, they patented the, the trench inside that goes around, the in, you know, that's laid in, in it around the top, you know, goes around the top, just in from, from the kerfing and all that stuff. So they've changed over the years. And I think they have gotten more complex sounding, and I think they have found ways to get more presence. Uh, I remember when I tried the new 814, when it had come out with, the, with their new bracing and the trench and all that, side by side with last year's 814 here in, at a shop here in New York. And it was quite obvious what was going on. There was, they were 
bringing in some broth and resonance and a mid-range resonance and that sort of thing. Um, but still, nothing, nothing remotely like the Martin sound. And again, we love the Martin sound. That doesn't mean everybody else is going to feel the way that we do. But, but to go to your question about what's going on at Martin, why do they do that? Again, there's, it's probably everything. It is the finish. It is the bracing. It is the thickness of the top. It's the thickness of the back and sides. It is, it is the, the uh, neck joint. I mean, you can play Martins from different eras, and they don't sound the same. 50s Martin doesn't sound like a 30s Martin, doesn't sound like a 70s Martin. 70s Martins don't sound like a 90s Martin, and so forth. Exactly, but you can go into the minute details of this has more of that or less of that, but they all still have that body resonance, that undertone, that presence, that, that extra stuff that we fell in love with um, when we were kids. When do you remember encountering a Martin and recognizing that there was something special about it? Oh, I, I can tell you exactly when it was. It was my first opportunity to play and own a Martin when the original D1 came out in the mid-90s, I got to play, I think it was called a D1, and I'm gonna be mixed up now because I remember there's a road series as well. There was a D1, a D1R, and then there was a DM and a DR. So, sake of argument, I my first opportunity to play both the Rosewood and the Mahogany version of that guitar, get your field recorders out, start taking notes, and if you're gonna to listen to any part of this podcast, make sure it's this part right here. I fell in love with the mahogany version, and I remember uh, telling the salesperson, "Wow, I, 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 Rosewood's more expensive, but I think I like mahogany better." And uh, all jokes aside, that that opportunity to play my first Martin guitar and afford it, because this is somebody, and you guys can relate to it. If you were going into the early '90s, when the only guitars you could buy from Martin were standard series instruments and expensive stuff, all relatively speaking. Being able to get something like a D1, I couldn't believe it was real. I was so excited to get, and it's cliche, the Martin sound at a better price point. And that wasn't the first time I've ever heard a Martin guitar or seen one in an advertisement, seen one in a concert. But the first time I held one, that was enough for me. And, and maybe it was smart that I didn't compare it to some other guitars I would never be able to afford who knows if I went back in time now and compared that to a D18 or a, a D35 or uh, maybe I would have recognized that it's worth spending the extra double the cost or whatever it would have been. But yeah, it was the mid-90s, whenever that first, probably the, the year that you could buy a D1, that's when I decided and it, it took no longer than uh, one sitting. I was totally, totally hooked. Wow, so how old were you at that time? Uh... In my 20s, I guess, mid-20s. Yes, I, I, I held back when you said that about the D1 as opposed to the D1R. I didn't do the uh, jolly, <laughs> what? <laughs> so allow me to do it then. Um, <laughs> so, uh, wow. <laughs> I'm glad I'm recording this. <laughs> I wish I could actually do the sound effect they have in cartoons for that. That'd be a good sound effect for you to get. Um, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Uh, when I was a kid, I knew nothing about guitars. I had no idea what... I grew up listening to Dylan and the Beatles almost exclusively. 
and I had no understanding whatsoever. Uh, they played guitars, and and you know somebody had left some old beat up guitars in my basement. Some friends of my brothers that were all painted psychedelic and stuff, but they didn't really work, and they had like a couple strings on them. But one of them had F holes, like Harrison's guitar, and you know, and Lennon's uh, ca uh, casino, and. Um, and all you know all that stuff so i thought they were cool and one of them had like a fender style headstock uh, you know like a stratic headstock i thought they were cool and they're basically just toys for me and my friends um to like you know uh, basically do you know karaoke to beatles records yeah. and um but i asked somebody at one point what kind of guitars crosshills nash and young played after being completely uh blown away by hearing four-way street uh, particularly the acoustic stuff in those days on on that uh, double live album and somebody said gibson's some older kid uh, mm. high school student said gibson's and so i assumed they played gibson acoustic guitars for years and uh and he of course was referring to their electrics and you know neil was you know, played by that time, was playing a Les Paul and and still was playing a Firebird, even and they both you know were playing played like ES 335s at one point, though um, I never remember when the White Falcons, Scratch White Falcons showed up and any of that stuff. But the, my first opportunity to see a, a real Gibson, because then I grew up in one of those kind of towns where the local music store had nothing but the cheap Asian guitars. You know, um, Yamaha was probably the most expensive thing they carried. And I finally saw, you know, a young adult musician with a Gibson, and I'm pretty sure it was a hummingbird um, or dove. I think it was a hummingbird. And uh, it didn't sound anything <laughs> like Crosby's Nash sounded on the records. And uh, I remember it, to me, sounded very thin trebles. And he even let me play it. My God, by that time, I was strumming guitars, you know, and thin trebles and a very thuddy, thunky, immediate, thunk, 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 you know, wound string sound uh, with, you know, as, as our friend Tony Phillips likes to say of Gibson's, they have decay for days. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that, you know, it was the sound that it was. And, um, but the sound that I heard on records that said to my brain, and I granted it did sound like early Bob Dylan. He did have like a, you know, he does have that funky thunk sound when he was playing a, a J50 and, and a, later was playing a either late 20s or early 30s Nick Lucas special um, on his uh, world tours in 65 and 66. But I didn't know that at the time. I just recognized, it just sounded old time and I think that's why he liked it. It sounded like Woody Guthrie records that have that, um, the tone is extremely fundamental with very little else going on and, and the notes decay very quickly which is how Emerson will tell you uh, is what some people really like I remember him sitting there after he played a show at Mandolin Brothers and, and people were sitting there talking about sustain and how wonderful sustain on these guitars and he said what are we going to do sit around and smoke a cigarette and wait for the next note you know he, <laughs> I can hear him saying that too he doesn't like it he doesn't like the overtones he wants fundamental and you know harmonics but he doesn't want all that stuff to get in the way of the next note almost in a jazz sense the reason jazz players like the you know maple and spruce is 
if they're going to play a 13 flat five or whatever the chord is, they want to hear that barbershop quartet of all six notes, uh, quartet, sextet of all six notes without anything else getting in the way. It's all about the piano-like, you know, chord going on. And so, I, you know, I get all of that. I would much rather hear Joe Pass uh, play his own 45 or play, you know, a D18 or any of those guys because I love that thicker Martin sound with all those overtones and, and sustain, sustaining overtones that build up that help create that Martin sound. So, but this is where it came from. Anybody who knows me and have heard us talk, well, I've heard this story. It was Neil Young playing Calgary on the Sand on Four-Way Street, and it was uh, David Crosby playing Lee Shore on Four-Way Street, and it was Stephen Stills' leads on, um, on On the Way Home. I think that's the one. He, no, what's the one they do in When a Dream yeah. Came? Is that on the oh, name yeah. of On the Way Home? And those were... That's, that's what an acoustic guitar is supposed to sound like. That's what I felt like. And then I go, my brother and his girlfriend take me to see uh, the concert of Bangladesh at the drive-in theater. And there's Bob Dylan playing a D28. And I had already bought the record. It was the first record I ever bought with my own money that I had made, you know, doing odd chores and mowing lawns and all that stuff. And... Dylan at the Concert of Bangladesh, that to me was what an acoustic guitar is supposed to sound like. Paul McCartney on Blackbird, Lennon on, on Dear Prudence, and the two of them on Two of Us, all of them Martin guitars. And so I, my ear was very Martin-centric, but on the tracks, he's, uh, Dylan's playing a, a 12 fret 0021, with there's some argument about which one it really uh, was but they believe it was a guy from Minnesota that he knew in the old days that he got that guitar from him for a time and used it to record the... Uh, but that was recorded in multiple sessions. So he re recorded originally in New York City, did the entire album in open E, which when you hear the actual uh, oh. recordings, uh, the straight recordings of just him alone, it does begin to sound monotonous eventually, so he re-recorded some of those uh, actually, I think, in Minnesota, and so he may have been using two different 0021s, but Keith Richards, he uh, is famous for playing uh, a big Gibson Jumbo, I don't remember now if it's a hummingbird, but um, but he also played a, a, a vintage 0021, and um, you know, that's, you know, that too sounds like uh, the Martin sound. Um, before Emmy Lou Harris got her signature model from Gibson, which was a smaller replica of a J200, she, like a lot of people, put the J200s up because that's, if you're playing in Bakersfield or in Nashville, that was the quintessential country stars looking guitar with the big fancy pick guard and the big mustache bridge and all that. But before she got her signature model, every time the band left and left her alone on stage, they brought her an OM42 to <laughs> play solo. And, you know, again, the, the Martin sound has just been, uh, that's what an acoustic guitar should sound like to me. I have a very dear friend who's good friends with Huss and or Dalton and loves their guitars, plays their guitars. Um, they don't do it for me. And they, they're perfectly fine. But they're missing that 
waving inner inner marriage of all the registers and the undertone and the harmonics and all that stuff that I keep talking about that give you that that uh, cat's cradle locking in and or whatever. But uh, but um, yeah, so. It, I loved that sound long before I even knew what a Martin was. And it wasn't until I started reading Acoustic Guitar Magazine and seeing ads for the Schoenberg soloists and seeing articles about that and uh, the OMs and then moved to New York and, and actually could go into stores that had Martins that it all came together. <laughs> and it's important to note, if you've gone this far with us and we didn't geek you out of the podcast, maybe the short answer is the Martin sound is, quote-unquote, it's got sustain, overtones, a thick, low mid-range voice, and it's got a personality to it that some other guitars and some other companies might be more immediate, might be more uh, fundamental with not as much overtones and not as much sustain. I know this is really hurrying through a quick definition of anything, so it's nothing that you, you don't want to take these two minutes of the podcast and, and live by it, but I do think it sounds like you and I are saying the same things. I do have a very, very interesting question and part of the reason I love doing these podcasts with you, we don't bury it with an hour of a pre-production meeting, 25 emails, overthink everything, and then try to get in front of a microphone and speak accurately. This is very conversational, and it's never, ever, ever overthought. And some people might attack us. It's, it's not thought of enough. I'll but, say. <laughs> but, but, I, but I love that about it because it, I think if this ever became anything but an honest conversation it just wouldn't be what it is but you've you're in a situation where we talked earlier martin knows how to make a martin you can't go into martin steal the recipe and go build it in california you can't go build it in china but you own a guitar that the back and sides were built at martin and the top was built by people who used to work at martin and they connected everything together where do you rate your conversion in this whole scheme of things, or is that too convoluted to talk about? I, I don't know where I, I say I rate it very highly. I absolutely love it. And even though I suffer from dreadnought shoulder, I I just hope uh, that I never, ever, ever get in a position where I have to sell that guitar. And um, But yes, it was uh, back when Dave Strunk had to leave the uh, company um, because he had some issues with his knee and just couldn't do the, the standing, you know, anymore and he's working his old own schedule that when he and rich both left the company and started brothers music i wanted to throw them a little business uh as you know our friend dave musselwhite has been world famous for doing those kind of conversions where they take a uh, old martin with you know usually with brazilian rosewood back and sides like most recently the you know one we got to play a martin fest was a d28e so it was really heavily braced and had the electronics in it with the you know the tone and volume knob and all that stuff and they were very overbuilt uh guitars and had that top taken off and and muscle white and and other craftsmen that he deals with um that he you know will shop it out to when it comes to like pearl inlay and stuff uh, um, basically turned it into what's essentially a, a 1930s D45. And, um, and it's just, you know, with a 500-year-old top, 
you know, four, 450 to 500 year old Adirondack spruce top. So Crazy. some people are against, you know, how can you do that to old Martins? In my case, the guitar that I had mine built from had been destroyed. So it, uh, the, the top and neck were completely destroyed and there was actually a hole in the, you know, on the base bout uh, around on the uh, lower bout shoulder. And I guess you can call them, I guess it's the hip. Um, the shoulders are up by the neck. And they did a spectacular job. And it has authentic 1937 bracing. Um, so on Adirondack spruce. And, um, you know, on the bridges, you know, authentic to the 30 style, the fingerboard is as, so in other words, similar to what you would get at the factory in the authentic series. Um, there was a time when the, the factory would do that. And then they realized they were actually in competition with their own authentic series so they just they stopped doing conversions and there have been talk once in a while of them going back to it i don't know if they ever will but um so it's about as martin as you can get uh it just was done by you know a guy from the repair department and and rich play uh, you know worked in various places uh, instead of the martin custom shop so i guess you can say it's an unofficial martin and I absolutely love it. And I have played it against other people's conversions. And I have played it against the uh, actual authentics. I mean, I really loved the authentics. I really loved the, uh, the uh, D28 authentic 1941. And with the uh, rear shifted bracing, really loved that. And, of course, they don't use Brazilian rosewood except on the 45s. And they cost, you know, an unbelievable amount of money. So, A Brazilian so, dollars. A Brazilian dollars, thank you very much. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, I think your your conversion is the outlier. You can make a Martin outside the factory if the back and sides start in the factory, if the top is connected to people that worked in the factory right before you got the top, and if there's enough care. I think you probably could make the argument whether you want to or not. Your conversion bucks the trend of this whole uh, yeah. series. John, you know, John Hall does these kind of conversions and he actually, they bought the top from John. John had already had the top joined together and they, and they, and he sold it to them to, to put on my guitar. So all those oh. guys in the Pennsylvania area, they all, they all, you know, help. When brothers first went into business, they would borrow Dave's hide glue pot, you know, and then he'd be, you know, where's my hide glue pot? So yeah, they all, they're all friends <laughs> and they all, you know, help one another out with their uh, commissions, stuff like that. Yeah, I have an, another story about this is going to Mandolin Brothers and there was a country boy, a bourgeois country boy, which is his version of a you know, pre-war G18. And Ricky Skaggs, I think it was Ricky Skaggs, uh, maybe it was Marty Stewart, but I'm pretty sure it was Ricky Skaggs, was in the you know, ads at those times in the guitar magazine saying, sounds just like a pre-war D18. So there I had that. I had an early idea, uh, uh, it was before the D, I think it was before the Authentic came out. So it was the D18 GE, Golden Era, uh, and uh, the Collings, and the Santa Cruz version, and all those guitars were there. All Mahogany Dreadnoughts, all their take of pre-war Martins. So I played them. I played, first of all, I played the Country Boy before I even did the big comparison. And it didn't sound like the, oh, and that's the other thing they had. He had like two pre-war D-18s there as well. So it did not sound like those pre-war D-18s. There were things about it that sounded, it had that vintage openness that you did not get from a straight brace D-18 in those days. And uh, it had that, that, again, that we're talking about 
phenomena here that are hard to describe and hard to explain. You just have to experience them. That three-dimensional cavernous inside sound, not what's coming out of the sound hole, but you can go in and it's something that torrefaction creates now that they can create uh, by, you know, toasting the woods and stuff. And Bourgeois was amazing. This was before he was doing that, but, but he was a major pioneer in that when it came to American guitars. And um, it had that certain things about it, but it had plenty of things that, that, were, that Martin just it didn't have. It did not have that kind of thickness. It didn't have the intermarrying that I loved so much. It had fundamental notes that sat up and were separate from the undertone. They didn't, the undertone didn't come up and hug it or swell up and around it and, and intermarry. And they were made with bolt-on necks. So it, they had the bourgeois sound, which is not that different from the Hudson Dalton sound. Um, and those kind of people. Um, and so I played these different things. And the people that probably, the sound that was closest was the D18G and the Santa Cruz, whatever the Santa Cruz uh, guitar was. I don't remember the specific model, but also full-size dovetail neck joint. Um, the interesting thing about that is Gibson's use a full-size dovetail neck joint. And they have their secrets that Martin has too because they create their Gibson sound guitars using virtually what seems to be the same technology, same kind of X-bracing, same kind of stuff, but their, uh, their guitars don't sound like Martins and Martins don't sound like Gibsons. And that, for as nice as that bourgeois was, it did not sound to me like uh, the pre-war D18s nearly as much as the D18GE sounded like them, even though it heavily, more heavily built, uh, thicker bracing, didn't sound exactly like a pre-war Martin either. But, it, but what they did sound like was a Martin. So it's not pronounced Borgiois. That's interesting. Um, tisn't. <laughs> um, but you know me. I'm often mispronouncing names that I've only read aloud. I remember uh, Jorma uh, uh, Kalkonen. I spent years saying Kokonen because, um, because that's what I thought. <laughs> you know, I just read it. And I never heard him, actually, until I heard Bill Graham introduce him on some Jefferson Airplane bootleg or hot tuna thing. Say, so oh, that's how you pronounce his last name. And I never knew what Jorma or Jorma, you know. I mean, Jorma Kokonen. Kokonen. Maybe I call it Kokonen. Jorma Kokonen, I think is what I called it. But so that's, that's going to be our trivia question this week. Does Jorma Kokonen play a Borgios? <laughs> Probably not. He does not. He mainly is a Gibson guy. He typically plays one of those, uh, those, uh, I know people out there are going to already know the answer to this. It's black. It's got a, it's got a, cut, a pointy, 14 cutaway and, and maybe even stars on the, he on the headstock. Uh, but that was until he got his Martin signature model, of course, which ah. sounds like a Martin. So. Well, that's all well and good, but would you like to play a game of 20 questions with me? I think it's time we do play 20 questions. So I must ask the Swami to come up with 20 questions to guess the guitar that I'm going to be thinking of. He gets 20 questions that can include up to three model guesses. And the guitar has to be currently in production. 
And so I'm going to put my thinking cap on so as we break for a station identification. Because I forgot it was my turn. So I want to think of something <laughs> interesting. Okay, 20 questions on the clock. Go. Is this guitar an OM size? Rats. <laughs> yes, that's one question. Is this guitar made in Nazareth? Yes. That's two questions. Is this guitar an OM21? No, that's three questions and one guess. Does this guitar have a natural top? No, it does not. It does not have a, a natural top. Is this guitar an OM28 Ambertone? No. So that is now five questions or six, depending on how we want to play it. Oh, and it's, it's already two of my three. I, I wasted that. Yep, two of your three guesses. Uh, does this guitar have a sunburst color on top? No, that's six or seven. Does this guitar have Ambertone on top? No, that's eight. Does this guitar have herringbone? No, nine. Number nine, number nine, number nine. nine. Does this guitar have abalone on top? No, ten. Ten, ten, ten. Does it have tortoise binding? Negative. What? Is it in the standard series? No. Is it in the 15 series? 13, 13, 13, 13. Is it in the 16 series? 14, 14, 14, 14. I know how this movie ends. Is this in the modern deluxe series? 15, 15, 15. Is it a special edition? Yes. <laughs> you can't answer, but those of you listening, do you know? Wow. It's an OM sized long scale. It doesn't have herringbone. It doesn't have tortoise. It doesn't have abalone. <laughs> I cannot think of a special edition that doesn't have tortoise binding or herringbone or pearl. So it's got to be white. I can't ask another question about a model because it's my last one. Does this have a signature on the fretboard? The answer is no. It does not have a signature on the fretboard. Does this guitar retail for more than $7,000? No. I have an idea. If you don't get it with these two questions, I'm going to start giving you hints. Wow, it's that bad, huh? Well, apparently, since you, you can't remember this instrument right now, off the top of your head. Does this guitar have white-black white binding? No. 
Does this guitar have no binding? That is incorrect, and those are now 20 questions. This guitar has certified European flame maple binding. This guitar has a certified ebony bridge. I'm still here. This guitar has a certified top. It has a satin finish. Is this the uh, biosphere? The OM biosphere is correct. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> the OM biosphere with the Robert Getzel mural of a sand. You asked me a tortoise. You said, does this have tortoise? And they're going to say on the... <laughs> and I thought you were going to talk about the sea turtle. But that's does it have it. a tortoise on the top? Wow. <laughs> I warned you. I was coming for you. <laughs> Boy, are you in trouble next time. I'm glad I got on the website. I hadn't, you know, I could have just thought it went off the top of my head, but I thought, no, wait a second, let's go into special editions and see if there's anything interesting. <laughs> You're rotten. I think I asked the right questions, too. I think wanting to know the binding would have given away maybe the series, maybe the cost. Wow. You start, exactly, you started off with OM to begin with, and... Uh, Fell off the cliff from there, yeah. Yeah, well, you started to go through all the series. You just unfortunately thought of special edition... Way too late. But. Well, well, I'm in a bad mood now. From all of us at Mari's Music, thanks for listening. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> so when you get that, when it comes in, you'll have to do, let us know if it has the Martin sound. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it does. Wow. Sapelli back and sides. So yeah, so the Martin Owen Biosphere, if you've never seen it, you should really check it out. It's gorgeous. It has uh, really beautiful uh, high contrast banding on the um, FSC certified Sapelli back and sides. It has an FSC certified select uh, mahogany neck. It has a certified, it doesn't say FFC certified, but a certified European spruce top. And uh, that may just be they may have just accidentally left off the Forest Stewardship Council uh, when it came to uh, the top. But uh, certified ebony for the headplate. Um, beautiful uh, maple binding, as I already said. So a very cool guitar. And, uh, you know, very much uh, with Martin's commitment to sustainability in the natural environment and in the forests that are managed by humans. Um, so very cool guitar. Well, thanks, Boone. You got me fair and square, and I do so look forward to next week. I want to thank everybody for listening. This was really a fun topic, and if, if we got close to putting our definition on the Martin Sound, you know, I hope we hope we got halfway there anyway. And if you have more things to add, please uh, send us an email anytime you want, support at marismusic.com, and we definitely invite you to take part in uh, the live chat and the comment section if you're checking this out on the YouTube version of everything. That's going to do it for the Martin Sound. From all of us at Mari's Music, thanks for listening. Hear you later. This has been a presentation of Mari's Music, your trusted source for Martin and Blue Ridge guitars. Find us online at maurismusic.com. Music.com.